John 15, 9-11, abiding in Christ, abiding in love, the love of Christ. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your righteous and holy word. We know you are righteous, and everything you say is good and righteous. We now confess that, we believe it, we are your people. And now, Lord, would you strengthen us and nourish us by the truths of your word, that we might emulate Christ just as we have just read. We pray, Lord, that we will please you and honor you by following your commandments and having the joy of the Holy Spirit in us. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. In chapter 15 of John, we are right in the middle of a long discourse that Christ had with his disciples in his final days. This discourse started in chapter 13 with the supper. And then in 1331, he begins his discourse, and that continues throughout these chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and then his prayer in chapter 17. And after that, that's when Jesus and his disciples proceed to the garden. And there, after a while, he is arrested and then sent away for torture and crucifixion. Well, in these final days, Christ, our Lord, he has emphasized the need to be patiently waiting for him. First, temporarily wait for three days for him to rise from the dead. And that being a symbol and a sign of their desire or need to have the desire to wait for him to return until they meet him again. He has spoken of it in both ways, both his temporary departure and his permanent physical departure from them. And meantime, that they should anticipate his return, such as he says in chapter 14, verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Their hope is in the presence of Christ, meantime, by the Holy Spirit. They anticipate his return, but meantime, a greater portion of the Holy Spirit, a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit will be given to the disciples. He has been mentioning this repeatedly from 14, 15, and 16. He will repeat it. The Holy Spirit is given to us to comfort us and to aid us while we are physically absent from Christ. That's his emphasis. But also his emphasis has been to love God and love one another. What is our fundamental duty between the first and second comings of Christ? To love God and to love one another. To love God by following the commandments of God. Which commandments include love for one another? The proper way, the biblical way that we should love each other. And we have said before, we say again now, that the way that it is explained the concrete summary of the way we love God and love our neighbor as ourselves is contained in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments of the book of Exodus, chapter 20, 
1 to 17. That is the way we love one another. And then wherever those commandments are further explained in both the Old Testament and New Testament, in terms of more implications, more scenarios, more cases, those ways are the ways we should love one another and love God. And if we do love one another, we prove that we love God. If we do not love one another, then we don't love God. This is what he's been emphasizing in these chapters, that we should love God and love one another if we are truly his disciples. We say if. Well, Christ has been saying if. He's been speaking in those terms, in those conditional terms as well. Because after exhorting us to love each other, he has also been exhorting us now and then. And then in our last message in 15, 1 to 8, more expansively with the fact that if we love one another and love God, there will be fruit. The tree will not be a worthless fruit tree that bears no fruit. It will be a tree that bears fruit, abundant fruit on its branches. Christ is the tree or the vine, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 15. He is the vine, the gardener, the vine dresser, the farmer, the planter is the father. The father is the planter, the vine dresser, and the vine is Christ. The branches are us. But then, on this tree, physical, visible tree, trees, even the fruitful trees, will have a a branch here or there that does not actually bear fruit. Well, what does the good planter do? What does the good farmer do? What does the good vine dresser do? What does he do when he sees that? He clips them off. He breaks them off so that they don't take up space on the tree. And that, Jesus said in verses 1 to 8, is a symbol of those people who pretentiously associate with the local church. The people who are false brethren, the people who are so-called Christians, so-called brothers, when they associate in the local church, they don't produce fruit, and ultimately, God will break them off and then throw them into the fire. Verse 6 says, they dry up, they're thrown away, they dry up, they are gathered and then thrown into the fire. This is a symbol or description of how the angelic hosts of God will collect all of the wicked, all of the reprobate, including those who pretend to be Christians, including them, and then throw them into the lake of fire on the day of judgment. That's John 15, verse 6. But those who are true believers, they bear fruit. They bear fruit. And when they bear fruit, they bear it to prove that they are disciples and they bear fruit to glorify God. Those two aspects are in verse 8. Verse 8, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit. God the Father will not be glorified unless we bear fruit. But he also says bear much fruit. If we bear much fruit, we glorify our Heavenly Father. Like Jesus said, uh, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. 
When we produce good fruit, good works, and those good works are good fruits as explained in the Bible, not according to our estimation and not the world's estimation of what's good, but what God says is good fruit. When we do that, both in our theology and in our morality, then we bear much fruit and glorify God, the Father. Only then. It is necessary, therefore, to be those who bear much fruit and glorify the Father, in contrast to glorifying ourselves or glorifying one another. We are here to glorify God. So then whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we must do to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Also, verse 8 told us, we prove to be his disciples. And so prove to be his disciples. That must mean that some people are false disciples. There are true disciples and false disciples, true brethren and false brethren, true people of God and false people of God, on and on. It must mean that, because he says so right here, and so prove to be his disciples. Not only is that a fact, but it's also necessary to be proven. Prove to be my disciples. It's necessary to prove to ourselves and to one another, not in any boastful, pompous way. He's not meaning it that way. He's meaning it in terms of sincere and genuine love of God and love of neighbor, That's how we end up proving that we are his disciples. It's not possible for us to say we are his disciples and then contradict what it means to be a disciple. If we contradict it, then we are disproving our claim. We're not proving our claim. We are disproving our claim. Now, verses 9 to 11. He expands on this by summarizing. He comes back to it. Sometimes he summarizes and sometimes he expands. This is the way that Christ has explained it in this discourse. So, verses 9 to 11, he goes back to explaining certain fundamentals. Verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. The Father loved Christ in a very special and particular way, and even Christ loved us in a special, particular way. How is it that the Father loved the Son? And how is it that the Son loved us? In this passage, whether exclusively or primarily, what Jesus means has to do with his work in the world. His work in the world. In his incarnation. Why did he come as our savior? Why did he come as our mediator? What did he accomplish? And what was his relationship to the Father in that? Not only what was his relationship to the Father in that, what was his relationship to us in that? This is what he has in view right here in the first part of verse 9. That the Father loves the Son and the Son loves us in relation to his redemptive work, his salvific work on our behalf. Why did he come into the world? In other words, we're not talking about the love of the Father and the Son which they had before the foundation of the world and not the love of the Father and the Son in eternity future. 
We're not necessarily talking about those aspects. We're talking about in time and space. How is it that the Father loved the Son and the Son loved us? Let's emphasize this fact of the Father first loving the Son. The Father loves the Son in whatever He did in this world. John 3, John 3, 35. John chapter 3, 35. The love of the Father toward the Son. 3, 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father loves the Son. And why is it that John and the Scripture emphasizes this fact? Because whatever Jesus did in the world, whatever he said, whatever he accomplished in the world is not contrary to the Father's wishes, not contrary to the Father's purposes, not contrary to the Father's love. It's in accordance with his love. We cannot separate Christ from God the Father. We cannot do that. So if we have this assertion, the Father loves the Son, if the Father loves the Son in what he did in the world, then we should love the Son for what He did in the world. If we're going to be on the side of God the Father, if we're going to be in His favor, we must love what His Son did because the Father loves the Son. Not only did He love the Son, He gave all things into His hand. The authority to accomplish everything for our redemption was in the hand, in the power of the Son. All authority was given to Him. The the minutest of details of everything that happened in his life were in his power, in his authority, in his control, in the control of the Son. That's how much the Father endorsed, the Father loved, the Father approved of his Son and the work he did in the world. Chapter 5, John 5, verse 20. John chapter 5, verse 20. He says, For the Father loves the Son, and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him that you may marvel. The Father loves the Son. Not only does he love the Son, he shows him all things that he himself is doing. There is no secret between the Father and the Son. There is no plan of the Father that the Son doesn't know about. The Son knows everything that the Father knows and does everything that the Father wants him to do. He shows him all things that he himself is doing. The Father's purposes, the Father's will, the Father's love, for the Son is everything, all of it, is known to the Son. It's known to the Son, and not only is it known to the Son, it is carried out. The Son carries it out. He executes it. He accomplishes it. He obeys it. He says, And greater works than these will He show Him that you may marvel. So far, Christ has accomplished many works of the Father, appointed by the Father for him to do, and he will do even more works 
what would these greater works be? The death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and all that is future to that. These greater works are for Christ to accomplish, and what will be the result of it? We will marvel at how harmonious of a relationship that the Father and the Son have with one another. How beautiful, harmonious of a relationship that everything is accomplished according to the will of the Father through the Son He loves. Now, chapter 17. Chapter 17. Did Christ accomplish everything? Well, before He's arrested, in His prayer to the Father, He says that He has accomplished it. Christ says he has accomplished everything that the Father had for him. First, chapter 17, verse 2. Let's just read verses 1 and 2. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. The hour has come for the Son to be glorified, and when the Son is glorified, the Father will be glorified. What is this hour he means? He doesn't mean hour of the clock, but he means time in history. What is that? He is talking about that he's about to be arrested and he's about to be impaled on the cross for our sins. And when we say our sins, it says, verse Two, even as you gave him authority over all mankind. The authority over all mankind is in the hand or power of the Son. He has that power, and the Father gave him that power. And to give eternal life to them, to all whom you have given him. The Father has given some people among all mankind to the Son, And the Son gives them, grants them, eternal life. That's verses 1 and 2. This was a part of how the Father loved the Son. And then the Son loved us in return. 17, chapter 17, and we'll start at verse 22. We'll read 22 to 26. More on the Father loving the Son, and us. 22. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. This love of the Father for the Son 
to the Son is accomplished in this redemption. And then He, the Son, gives us this love of the Father so that we participate, we fellowship, we commune with the Father and the Son. We have this unity among ourselves and between us and God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the love that the Father gave to us through His Son. It does not come to us apart from His Son. Okay, now, how specifically did the Son love us? Verse 9, John 15, 9. I have also loved you. This love that God ordained for the Son to practice, for the Son to accomplish, how is it, he says, I have also loved you. Christ loved us. How did he love us? He loved us by dying for our sins. He loved us by dying for our sins. He loved us by being lifted up, carried away, and placed on the cross. John 3. John 3, 16. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. This love of the Son for us, starting from the Father, is the Father giving His only begotten Son to us. When He gives His Son to us, it's not just merely give so that He comes on the earth, teaches a few things, makes people feel good for a little while, for three years, and then returns to heaven. No, this love is ultimately demonstrated by Him dying on the cross for us. That's what it means. He gave His only begotten Son. His Son accomplished that for us. For example, also, chapter 6. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 33. 6.33 For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God is that which comes down from heaven. Who is this bread of God? Christ. He came down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's the way in which He loved us. And then His will. His will in loving us. We pick it up at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The will of the Father is why he came into the world. The will of the Father. Well, what is the will of the Father? The will of the Father is that Christ loses nothing 
of all that the Father gave to Christ. Well, what is the all that the Father gave to Christ? And how is it that they come to Christ? They have to be granted. We've seen that in 37. They have to be granted. And then verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him. Beholds the Son. What does it mean to look at or behold the Son? Does it mean that those who had physical eyes and, did, and just saw the Son, they had physical eyes and just looked at Him, that's how they have eternal life? No, he's talking about spiritual sight, spiritual beholding, right? Well, what do they have to behold spiritually? What do they have to see spiritually? This is what they have to see. Chapter 12, John chapter 12. 32 to 33. John 12, 32 to 33. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. When he was lifted up, Lifted up in what sense? Not lifted up in our mind, not lifted up in a worship service, not lifted up by good music or a pleasant environment, not lifted up in that sense, but lifted up on the cross. He's talking about his death. Lifted up on the cross. When Christ is lifted up on the cross, that will draw all, meaning all the elect, to him. By the death of Christ. That's where we are joined to him. That's where his love is perfectly manifested. Right there. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Where is the love of Christ demonstrated? Where is it concretely known? It's known in his death who loved me and delivered himself up for me. To deliver oneself up means to hand over to be crucified, deliver over to be crucified. That's what he's saying here. His love is shown by his death, death on our behalf. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how Christ loved us. So, if this is true, that the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves us by dying for our sins, verse 9 of John 15. John 15, 9 says, Abide in my love. Abide in my love. Continue in my love, or remain in my love. To abide in his love means to continue in his love. Abiding in his love 
is not something mystical. It's not something super spiritual. It's nothing like that. Popularly, that's how abiding in Christ is preached. People think, popularly speaking, they think that abiding in Him means that we have some kind of special, unique relationship with Him. It's a super spiritual thing to do, and we all should seek for that. We all should do that and find some mystical, magical, special way of experiencing this love of Christ. He's not meaning it that way. In context, he does not mean it that way at all. Abide in my love has to do with keeping his commandments, which we will see in verse 10. But before we come to verse 10, let's go back to verse 9 where he said, Abide in my love. Continue in my love. Well, if Jesus died for us, I have also loved you, then we are to remain in that faith, in that truth, in that reality, that we are united to him. So we should continue in that unification with Christ. We are joined to Christ, and he's exhorting us to remain in that love, in that loving relationship that we now have, that loving union that we now have, that loving fellowship we now have. He's saying it's necessary to remain, continue, to persevere, to endure, such as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. He's reminding us of this fact. We have to press on. We have to exert ourselves. It must happen that way. Once we are in Christ, we don't just throw up our hands and say, there's nothing more for me. Leave me alone. I'm in. I'm in the kingdom. I belong to the king, and therefore leave me alone. No, he says, abide in my love. If he died for our sins, why should we still live in those sins for which he died? If those sins were detestable to him, detestable and distasteful to him, if he hated them so much that he was against us as our enemy, as our adversary, if he was against us, why would those sins still be acceptable to him after we're in Christ? Shouldn't we begin to remove them from our life? Indeed, this is what he means here. Abide in my love. It's necessary to press on, to persevere in whatever love we have first experienced. We will see that this doctrine is both in John and in Scripture. First, the, the, the need to remain. Let's deal with the need to remain and then how so remain. First, John chapter 8, the need to remain or abide. John 8, 31. John 8, 31 to 32. And for that matter, if we just followed the whole exchange Jesus had with the crowds, it would go to the end of the chapter. But we'll see in 8.31, Jesus warning them, telling them. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. 
If you abide in my word. He said, if. Well, this is counter to the belief that Christ loves everyone. This is counter to the belief that if you say you love Christ, then that's really true. You do belong to him just because you think so, you say so, you believe in him. That automatically makes you a Christian. It doesn't. Because he said, if you abide in my word, if you remain in my word, if, these are not man's words, these are the words of Christ. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. This is a conditional statement. If it's a conditional statement, what if we do not match the condition? What if we don't match it in the first part of the sentence? What if we don't abide in my word? Then the second part of the sentence will not be true of us. If you, for example, if you do not abide in my word, then you are not truly disciples of mine. Isn't that logically in any sentence, whether common speech or biblical speech? However, we use this conditional sentence. Isn't that what it means? What else could it mean? If you abide in my word. So he's warning them, people who are said in verse 31 to have believed in him. We're talking about believers because they made some profession. They showed some things, some sign that they belong, but they don't really. That's why he says, if you remain, then you are truly disciples. So if you don't remain, then you're not truly disciples. Whatever you're saying right now is not true of you. But if you continue until the end, then whatever you're saying now is true of you. If you abide in my word. Well, who is it that will abide or not abide? Who is it that will stay or will not stay in Christ? John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Verse 19. John 3, 19 to 21. John 3, 19 says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. When the light comes into the world, according to verse 19, men love darkness rather than light, therefore they deserve condemnation. But who is it? How is it further described that these people don't come to the light? Is it just that, oh, the light is just too bright, I just can't handle it? Is it just a physical thing? No, it's a spiritual, moral thing. Verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. This is the individual who does not bear fruit. This is the individual who does not abide in his love. He doesn't want that. He hates it, it says. Why? Because of his evil deeds. His evil deeds prevent him from loving the light. This is a comparison, for example, of criminals. 
When criminals do their dark and dirty deeds, when do they do it? They typically do it in darkness. Unless they're very, very brazen, they'll do it in broad daylight. But typically, criminals do it in darkness, right? But when the light is turned on and a criminal is in the midst of his crime, what happens? He gets startled. He gets irate. He does something. He runs away. Correct? So that's the kind of person we are if we don't come to the light. We don't say, oh, great, great. Thank you for turning on the light for me. That's what we would say if we were innocent. But criminals do the opposite. They hate the light. Why in the world did you turn on the light? They say. Also, if we don't come to the light, whether we call our sins evil or not, they are evil. Evil in the Bible is not just the mass murderer. The mass murderer, the genocidal maniac, is not the only evil person. Everyone who doesn't come to Christ, the light, is evil. Whether he thinks so or not, whether he admits it or not, he is evil because he doesn't want his evil deeds exposed. But those who belong to Christ, they practice the truth, 21. They practice the truth. This is more evidence that we abide in his love. We continue in his love. We practice the truth. We come to the light and our deeds are shown to be deeds wrought in God, accomplished in God. God changed us. God transformed us. He made us willing and happy to embrace the light. Thank you for turning on the light, we say, to God and the messenger of God. And we embrace it. And we remain in that light. We don't go back and turn off the light and go back into darkness. We stay in the light. John 3, 36. John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Those who do not believe and obey the Son have the wrath of God remaining on them, which means it was already on them and it continued on them and it'll remain on them, abide in in them and, and on them forever. It's one way or the other. We either have it or we do not have it. And if we abide or remain... It is tangible evidence that we are in Him, in His love. Otherwise, we are not. Then, in the the case of those who uh, 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 temporarily abide, let's go into that subject. Temporarily abide. Jesus is exhorting us to permanently abide. Indisputably, He's talking about permanent permanent continual abiding, perseverance, endurance in Him. This is what He's teaching. But what about those that do not abide permanently? In John, we have John 6. John 6, 66. In John 6, 66, Christ to the crowds was preaching a message that they found hard to accept, hard to hear. It was grating against them. It was bothering their ears, bothering their mind. It was arousing consternation in them. 
So what did they do finally? They put up with it for a while, but then finally what did they do? 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They withdrew and were not walking with him. They didn't abide in his love. And even the warning is given and anticipated in verses 70 to 71 among Jesus' closest disciples. 70, Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Judas, one of the twelve, was going to betray him among his closest disciples. How about the book of Acts? The book of Acts chapter 8. Simon the Magician. Simon the Magician. Simon, in the city of Samaria, heard the gospel. He believed the gospel, it says. But then, by his actions, he showed he didn't really believe the gospel. Peter confronts him and leaves him with that confrontation. And he is known, notoriously, from the apostolic period onward, in church history, as a fake disciple. Well, how did he show his falsehood? The book of Acts, chapter 8. First we have him explain, verse 9. Verse 9 says, Now there was a certain man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed. It says there, Simon himself believed. And after being baptized... He continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. All right, does it say Simon believed, Simon the magician? He believed and he was baptized, immersed in water, correct? Does that mean he was a true believer? Does that mean automatically he had salvation and then lost it? No. In 14 to 24, his sin is presented. And his sin was bribing the apostles, bribing the apostles with money to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Bribing the apostles with money to receive the power of the Holy Spirit to perform the miraculous signs that the apostles performed. Well, when that happened, verse 20, 8 verse 20. But Peter said to him, now this is immediate. This is not after days. This is not after a few years. It's immediate, he says. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. 
But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Peter cursed him. He said, May you, may your silver perish with you, with you, because of your bribery here. You have no part or portion. Your heart is not right before God. 22. Repent. If possible, you might be forgiven. Repent. He asked him to pray, right? Called on him to pray. But in 24, he doesn't pray. He asks Peter to pray for him. And then in 23, Peter says, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. You're still in your bitter old ways. And in the bondage of iniquity. He's still a slave of sin. He who commits sin is the slave of sin. John 8, 34 to 36. He who commits sin is the slave of sin. But if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. He wasn't free. He was still caught up with that. Do you see how he, though it said he believed, he did not abide in the love of Christ. Also, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 9 and 10. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Peter. Paul is in prison. He's in prison and likely about to be executed because of the way he's describing his imprisonment in this letter. He's about to be executed. This was likely his last letter, 2 Timothy. And while he is in prison, he says of this man Demas, who followed him for a while, We can read about him in Colossians 4.14 and Philemon 24. Colossians 4.14 and Philemon 24. Demas. He followed for a while. But it says, Demas, having loved this present world, that shows he was a false brother. And his sin here is akin to the betrayal of Judas Iscariot against Christ. Because Paul is about to be executed by the Romans. He's about to be executed and he deserts Paul because he doesn't want to be caught up with, with the so, so-called supposed crime of Paul that deserves execution. Paul did not deserve to be executed and Demas didn't want to be caught up with, with that. So he abandons Paul. He deserts him because he loved this present world. Demas. This is why Christ says, abide in my love. Now, does this mean that we are saved by the grace of God, but we are kept in the love of God by our human effort? Is it man's will that keeps us in Christ? Are we saved by the will of Christ, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? And then are we kept in that grace, kept in that love 
based on human will. Is that what Jesus teaches here? No, not at all. He is certainly emphasizing the fact that there must be conformity to his love. He is certainly saying that. That must be true of us. But he's not talking about the reason we end up remaining. He's not talking about the cause of why we remain. He's not talking about God's will, God's purpose in this verse. No verse of Scripture explains everything, right? No verse of Scripture. Some verses explain the free will of God. Other verses explain the will of man. Other verses explain the relationship of the two. And in this case, for those who are in Christ, truly in Christ, what is the means or what causes us to have the ability to remain in Christ? Shall we answer that question? That is found, already we read it, in John 3.21. In John 3.21, he said, But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Having been done or having been accomplished in God. If we do come to the truth or practice the truth and come to the light, how is it that that actually happened? Is it necessary for that to happen? Is it necessary for us to practice the truth, come to the light? Yes. But what causes that to happen? What instigates that? What sparks it? Having been wrought in God. It was God who caused that to happen. That's how it happened. Turn again to Philippians, another passage on this subject. Philippians chapter 2, 2, 12 and 13. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This exhortation is to the church, to the visible church, to the local church, here to the Philippian church, who are addressed as my beloved. Okay, he loves his local church, the Philippian church, the apostle does. He commends them for obeying when he's present and when he's absent, that they obey. But he also urges them to press on. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out. He doesn't say work for it. He doesn't say earn your salvation. He doesn't say the wages of your works will be your salvation. He doesn't say that. He doesn't mean that. He says work out, which means, like John 15, bear fruit. Manifest, show that you are truly disciples of mine. Prove that you are my disciples. So it should be worked out. Our salvation should manifest, demonstrate by fear and trembling. Okay, so this would be similar to Abide in my love. But how is it that we will abide in the the love of Christ? Verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in us. God's will, God's work for his good pleasure is working in and through us. When that fruit is born, who is doing it? Is the branch doing it or is the vine doing it? The vine is doing it. That's why he said in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. He's saying the same here in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. God works in us to bear the fruit in us. So the glory goes to God, not to us or to one another. Glory to God. This is how he means abide in my love. Verse 10 now, John 15, 10. John 15, 10. Remember we said abiding in him is not something mystical, not something obscure. It's not like a phantom, hard to reach, hard to grasp for only a special few. He brings concreteness to it in verse 10. He brings some uh, solidity to it in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. How is it that we remain in Christ? How is it that we abide in Christ, in the love of Christ? By keeping the commandments of Christ. When we keep his commandments, like he said in 1415, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 14.21, as he said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Verse 23, 14.23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. If we keep the commandments of Christ which is loving God, loving our neighbor as ourself. If we love our neighbor as ourself, then we show our love for God. 1 John 4, verse 20 says, if we love God, then we show it by loving our neighbor. We cannot say we love God and hate our brother. The one who does not love his brother cannot love God, he says, whom we have not seen. We see our brother, we can love our brother, but we don't see God. This is keeping the commandments of Christ. And these commandments are embodied and summarized in the Ten Commandments. And then those Ten Commandments are explained, they are exposited throughout the rest of the Bible. This is what it means to keep the commandments of Christ, to abide in His love. So that when... A Christian or a supposed Christian says, oh yes, I abide in the love of Christ, but has a profane mouth. Oh yes, I abide in the love of Christ, but I'm kind of greedy. I'm kind of covetous. I abide in the love of Christ, but don't tell me that my sexual sin is wrong. Don't tell me that. I abide in the love of Christ. I love Christ. I love Christ, but don't tell me, don't tell me, that I can't do this or that. They contradict their profession when they do that. It has to match. The two have to match. If you keep my commandments, you will abide 
in my love. This discourse, and even the whole book of John, if we were to study the truth of this doctrine, it would be in the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, all written by John the Apostle, who wrote these four books. He wrote the book of John and the three letters of John called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Well, in terms of this truth, we have it summarized in 1st John 2, 3 to 6. 1st John 2, 3 to 6. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. We want to know. We need to know. That's why he wrote this letter. To confirm to us how we can know. That we know him. And how do we know? If we keep his commandments. Then if we say we know him and don't keep his commandments, we are liars. The truth is not in us. But if we keep his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Truly perfected. That's how we know we are abiding in his love. The love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for us will know that it's truly in us if we are keeping his word. This is not work salvation. This is not legalism. This is not pharisaical or anything like that. This is what Scripture teaches. We must walk as he walked, because he says, the one who says he abides in him. Remember chapter 15? He's emphasizing the need to abide in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. We must walk, we must live, conduct our life the way Christ conducted his life. Did Christ sin? Did Christ do evil? Did Christ do anything wrong, thought, word, or deed? No. He was sinless. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22. Which one of you convicts me of sin? John 8.46. It was impossible. He did not sin. Christ did not sin. And our attachment to him, our unity with him, has to be the same. This is why he said in 15.10, John 15.10, Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. He kept the Father's commandments without sin. John 8.29 I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Our attachment to Christ means conformity to Christ. It must mean conformity to Christ. Yes, progressively. Yes, gradually. Yes, whenever we become aware of sin. Nobody becomes perfect in this world, but we strive for perfection. 
Matthew 5.48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, with all this talk of love and obedience, often concepts that are not joined together in common expositions of the Bible. Often they're not joined together, but they are joined together. We just saw that they are in verses 9 and 10. Another thing that's not joined is obeying commandments with joy. Look at verse 10, or verse 11. 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Joy with commandments? Talk about something that's a paradox, something that's uh, confusing to many hearers, uh, ears and hearers. That you would have joy. Christ is talking about joy and obedience, joy and commandments, joy in keeping his word. How in the world is that possible? But Jesus is not withholding joy from us. He's manifesting it. He's declaring it. That's why he says, these things I have spoken to you. Christ is not about withholding joy from us. He clearly announces how to have this joy. He explains it here. He explains it elsewhere. In fact, that's the purpose of the Bible, to explain how we can come into true, genuine, honest fellowship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the purpose of the Bible, how that's possible. And that's why he says, these things I have spoken to you. So listen carefully to my words. I'm not trying to withhold joy. I'm not trying to withhold happiness or pleasure, whatever synonym we might use of joy and peace, contentment. I'm not trying to withhold it, Christ says. I am declaring it to you. So if you believe it, then this is how it will happen. He wants his joy to be in him, to be in us. The joy of Christ to be in us, that my joy may be in you. Did Christ have joy? Certainly. Even when he thought about his death, even when he thought about everything that might happen to him, he thought about the joy of the Father. The joy of the Father was in him. In the book of Luke, Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verse 21, when Christ in Luke 10, 21, thought about the distinction that God made between the people of the earth, mankind. He rejoices in this way. Luke 10, 21. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, yes, Father, For thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. Well-pleasing in the sight of the Father and the Son rejoices when it actually happens in time and space. When he sees it happen before his very eyes, he rejoices in the will of God on the earth. He rejoiced. Christ rejoiced. Even when that meant afflictions, even when that meant his own Torment, Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, further on the joy of Christ. 
Why? Why did he have this joy? Hebrews 12, 1-3. Both his joy and then what we should learn from it. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Christ had the joy set before him, and that helped him to endure the cross. The joy set before him enabled him to endure utter torment and affliction. And that's what he wants us to have. So that whenever our problems come, whenever our worries come, whenever our afflictions and persecutions come, even if somebody threatens to put us to death, the joy of Christ that he had being in us will enable us to endure till the end. He who endures till the end shall be saved, Matthew 24, 13. So if we endure to the end, that endurance will happen because we have the joy of Christ in us which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. From Galatians 5, 22 to 23. This joy of Christ is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life to enable us to abide in the love of Christ, to obey the commandments of Christ. And one commandment is not to deny Christ. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, he said in Mark eight, thirty-eight. Now, this joy is not only that which comes as a deposit upon our conversion, but it is to be maintained throughout our Christian life and even increased in our Christian life. That's why he says, have it to the full. And he doesn't mean to the full as though on the earth it would be to the level that we will have in all eternity, but he means have it in fuller measure now, growing and growing and growing, even more and more. 1 John again. 1 John expounds on this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. 1 John 1, 1 to 4. 1 John 1, 1 says... What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. He wants the recipients, which now includes us, these recipients 
He wants us to understand this eternal life that abode, lived with the Father, was manifested among us, and now we have fellowship with the Father, fellowship with this eternal life who is specified in verse 3 as His Son, Jesus Christ, the word of life in verse 1, the eternal life in verse 2. This eternal life, word of life, is His Son, Jesus Christ. Then, because we are united to the Father and the Son, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. He wants His joy and their joy to rise and become complete. Like Jesus said, that it might be full, that it may be full. He wants it to grow and to grow. And how is it that we grow? We grow by sticking or remaining with the Word of Christ. When we are in the Word of Christ, obeying the Word of Christ, knowing the Word of Christ, it is this Word of Christ that gives us more and more joy. When we see its truths, when we realize its truths and its implications for us and for others and for the experiences we have day by day, this is how we grow in the love of Christ with the joy of Christ to persevere in this love until the very end. Let's do that, shall we? After all, the father had that toward his son. The son had that toward us. So now, let's rejoice in this love and in this joy of the Holy Spirit to follow the commandments of Christ. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.